The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. If you have your Bible, you can start flipping there, 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel is right after 1 Samuel. I hope that helps. No? All right. It's towards the front of your Bible, I'll tell you that much. But uh, if you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. The ushers will get you one. We want you to be uh, looking at God's Word as we go through this, reading along with us as, as we open this up. It is His Word that does the work in our hearts this morning and uh, every week. So we, um, well, I'll tell you, we're going to talk about, and I didn't think about this until we are singing that last song. Basically, they just, you sang the whole sermon about God's kingdom being here and, and our response to that. But we're going to look at how God is great over his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but when I think of a kingdom, it's kind of hard to wrap my mind around it. We, we don't live under a monarchy, but we have some, some points that we can think about, right? I think of the like, great sagas like the, the Chronicles of Narnia and that kingdom that we see there, or the Lord of the Rings. Um, you know, even looking at an earthly kingdom, we have the, the royal family, the kingdom in the United Kingdom, right? The kingdom in England. And there's some things that stand out that help me kind of focus my mind on what is a kingdom. There's outward visual things, like, you know, the, there's a palace or, or a castle, right? You see those great castles throughout Europe tied to a king or a kingdom. There's uh, often... There's a place of worship, a cathedral, a great, you know, in England, it's Westminster Abbey. All the, there's a place that ties that worship also. And then there's the dynasty, the lineage, the royal family itself, and usually represented like with a coat of arms on who they are. And those are kind of, uh, when I studied cultural anthropology for a minute, it was kind of the, the outward things, the things you can see that represented depth of that kingdom. But, but the things that you don't see are, are just as important in a kingdom. But the representation is able to be seen. When I think of the unseen elements of a kingdom, it's, it's, it's the servants, the people who are serving that kingdom it's the, the king himself and the impact that he has. Anybody ever seen Robin Hood? And we know who the, the, the great king, the true king, King Richard, is gone, serving the kingdom, fighting for the kingdom, and then we're left kind of with this Prince John guy, right? Ooh, I just watched the, uh, I just watched the Disney version. It was fantastic. He's sucking his thumb. He's, like, he's the epitome of what you don't want as a king. And, and, and what we see in, in, the, in God's word is he shows this path of these kingdoms. We, we, we see a true king, but we also see these lesser representations on earth of the king. And so that's just how I can wrap my mind around kingdoms. And so this morning, I'll just tell you our, our big idea. Our big idea is God is great over his kingdom because he is the true king. Or a tale of three houses. You might say, that doesn't make any sense, and I know. But it will when we open up, because in this passage, in, in 2 Samuel 7, 
there's a play on words that happens. And, and we repeatedly get this word house, but it means different things as it progresses. At the beginning, it means house as a, as a place, a home, a palace. And then it means house as a temple or a house of worship. And then it means house as a dynasty. And so we're going to kind of work our way through, break that apart, and look at each aspect of those as we read God's Word. So the first point we're going to get to is house as a home. And this is in verses 1 through 3, and you can read along with me. It says, Now, when the king, this is King David, by the way, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. I'm going to pause right there and kind of look at this idea of a house as a home, or a palace in this case. Now, when he says a house of cedar, we might think like log cabin, or I don't know where your mind goes with that, but we don't realize what that really represents. So the cedars of Lebanon were imported to make the king's house. This would be a very luxurious opulent palace that that David is living in, and he looks at all the good that God's done for him. He's he's defeated their army. He's he's put him into, he's he's built up this this great kingdom, and and he's sitting in this palace. And he looks, and and the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, is, is sitting in a tent, as it has been since God gave instruction for that. As they've traveled as they wandered in the desert, as they came and fought their way into the promised land, God's ark, or his representation of his presence, has been in this tent, this tent of meeting, this tabernacle. And David has just brought that into Jerusalem. And he's looking and he sees that there's disparity here. I've received so much from God, but I look and God's ark, his representation is sitting in a tent. And so David feels this desire to build a house for God. And and in this case, we'd be talking about a temple, but uh, he wants to build something that would show the glory of God to those around him. And it's funny because Nathan, who's you know, the prophet Nathan, we'll see him later if you read through 2 Samuel as, as David fails, uh, but Nathan would be his, his wise counsel, his, his, the person he would go to when he has, he's looking for counsel on what to do as the king. And Nathan's immediate response is, yes, you know, God's with you. Look what he's already done. This is a great idea. Go for it. And the problem that we have is that Nobody checked in with God on this, right? But it sounds good. It's a good desire. And I, I read this and I think about the times that I kind of, like, I want to help out God. But I don't realize that he doesn't need us to help him out. It's not that he is lacking in any way. But he... He wants us to serve. He wants us to worship. He wants us to be obedient. And as David's heart is out of a heart of gratitude and worship that he wants to build this house, it's a good desire. 
But we also sometimes want to help out God out of a wrong heart or a wrong desire. Like we think we got a better idea. Or maybe we think that if I can do things, this, this works-based idea, works righteousness, if I can do stuff for God, I'm going to earn something. I'm going to get something good. I'm going to elevate myself. We, we get a sense of self-righteousness sometimes when we push towards this idea of working uh, and helping God. Uh, the truth of the matter is that God does not need our help in any way. He's not lacking in anything. Sometimes we get to going and running ahead, and, and we got a good idea. And this is, this is, you know, later on, David would be affirmed that this is a good thing. It's a good desire. But he's running ahead without seeking God and his will, his plan. He doesn't need us, but he lets us participate in his kingdom. But it's always for his glory because he is the great king. He is the true king. When I, when I think about this in, in my life, um, you know, and I've watched this through my three daughters and now with Elijah, my, my little guy. He's about to be six, which he's not so little anymore, but, you know, that's another thing. But he wants to help around the house. Like my wife, Terry, gives me the honeydew list, and I'm usually lazy about it, but I get to it, <laughs> right? And... and and as I go to get my tools or whatever, Elijah wants to be a part of it. He wants to help. And I can tell you that it usually makes the project slower. <laughs> Sometimes I have to redo things. Um, but I look at him, and he is filled with a desire and a joy to be a helper. And it brings me joy to let him participate and watch him grow and learn. But sometimes, as I'm working... And I turn my back, he starts to work on something. And he's actually causing more damage and destruction because he didn't get instruction first. He, and, and, and this can go very badly if I don't catch him quick enough. And I think that's, that's what's going on in this first part of this passage is, is there's a good desire. And there's, but there's not the checking in and the instruction on, on when and how this is supposed to happen. And so we're going to go into the next point about the house as a temple. As we think about God as the true king over, over his house, and he built David a house out of his power and his authority, and he brought him up. And now David's starting to get ahead of him. And we're going to continue in verse 4 at this idea of house as a temple. It says, but that same night, the word of my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? We're going to pause right there. He, he's, he's gently but firmly placing David through the prophet Nathan back in his place. He's saying, I didn't ask you to. I haven't asked anybody to build me this. If I wanted it, I would have made it happen in my timing, in my way. 
It's interesting because this account doesn't give us a lot of the why. Um, but this is, you know, these historical texts that we see are echoed elsewhere. And so First Chronicles uh, 17 is actually what this exact passage is, is echoed in another part of Scripture. But then in, verse, uh, in chapter 22, we get a little bit more of why David isn't allowed to build the house and who will be. And it says, But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon, which means peace, by the way, and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. And so we see that the desire is good, it's just not the right timing. Anybody ever felt that, like you have this great desire and you want to do something great for God's kingdom and you feel like there's just always a no, but maybe it's a not yet. Maybe it's, there's a reason. And so David is going to continue in his kingship to fight and, and, and that isn't the time for God to build his temple. And so he's going to wait until he brings rest, till he's conquered through David, till he's brought peace. And then his son Solomon is going to be allowed to build this temple. So he's not denying the intention, and he's not denying the, the desire, but he's denying the timing. He's telling him, you're not the right person for this. There's also a foreshadowing that happens because at the end of this verse that I just read from 1 Chronicles 22, it says, he shall be my son. This is God talking about Solomon, we think, but there's something else going on. He shall be my son, and I'll be his father, and I'll establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Now, if we are students of the Bible, we know that David is the king. He passed it on to Solomon and then stuff starts going wrong, right? The kingdom split. There's bad kings. There's sometimes good kings. But his kingdom, his house, seems to die off at some point. But God, in his promise, has said it's forever. Forever. And when we see these, we know that it's pointing to something else. It's a, a foreshadowing, if you will. It's a, a pointing forward. And when it's pointing forward, it is pointing to Jesus. There's going to be a change of this physical temple that was built by human hands with the right intent to glorify God because he is the great king. But that representation is set in one place, and there's this, this foreshadowing that the temple isn't going to be that in the future. The temple is going to change and transition, and we see that Jesus, when he comes to earth, when he steps out of the glory of heaven and, and is incarnate, is here living amongst his people, he starts to proclaim that the kingdom of God, the presence of God, is here meaning with him as he walks around. And so the, the temple in Jerusalem is, is compared to him. Actually, in John 
2, 19 through 22, it says, after Jesus cleanses the temple, this is when he came in and run out the money changers, right? Cleanse the temple, he refers to himself in the temple and says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And he's not referring to the building because immediately the, the Pharisees and scribes, they're like, hey, this took decades to build. How are you going to build it in three days? But he's referring to the work that will be done as, as they try to destroy his body, the temple. As it's laid in the ground, it is raised up in three days to the temple. As, as he, we are given the Holy Spirit of God because of the work of Christ, each and every believer then becomes a part of this great temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19, we're asked this question. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And a lot of us like that. We, we use it like, hey, you know, my body's a temple. I'm going to eat clean. I'm going to exercise. And that is good, right? But, but that's not the whole point of here. this. It goes on to say, you are not your own. You're a servant of the king. For you were bought with a price, that heavy price that Christ paid on the cross. And it says, so glorify God in your body. All of this always points to even us walking around with the Spirit of God in us as his temple, as a representation of his presence, as it spreads throughout the earth. We always got to remember that the focus is in us. Just like the focus wasn't David. The focus is always God. It is His glory. It's about His presence. It's about His kingdom. And as this transition happens from a physical temple to the presence of Christ to us as the temple of God walking around presenting the kingdom, this grows, it spreads His glory, His authority, His power is on display. And it's crazy to me, crazy, that me, a mess, <laughs> uh, you know, broken, not worthy to be a temple for God, yet God uses me and each of you as a believer to put his presence in, to display his kingdom, his greatness as we go out. And just the fact that like every time we get to share the gospel and the spirit does a work in somebody and they are saved out of a kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, the kingdom spreads. And that representation of his power and his authority and his glory spreads and grows bigger. It's awesome. We also see that the true king came. He represented the kingdom of God. Everywhere he went, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is here. And I want us to think about this because a lot of times we think about the kingdom of God like heaven or in glory after but the kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is here. And as each one of us go out, we are proclaiming this truth, just like Jesus did. The kingdom is now. 
Don't wait as we you know, serve the king. It's not for something later. It's for now. And we should be just amazed that the true king, the good king, allows us to be a part of that. Just like allowing Elijah to come and, and participate, right? And he's, he's pleased with us as we serve him. But it's always about him. And we'll see more of that as we go on to the next point, which is house as a dynasty. We'll pick back up in verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, this is God still talking to Nathan, Thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, I took you from this, the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been the one. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly." From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from your, all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that you, to you, that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from the, your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. Do you see who is making stuff happen in this passage? It's not David. It's not Nathan. It is God. It is his authority, his power. He's the conqueror. He's the one who establishes. He brings peace in the end. God's greatness is on display here. And as we begin this part of the passage, we're shown how great God is through all he says and all he promises. He's, he's brought David from the sheep pens, from the pastures, from a lowly position, and he's elevated him to be the ruler of God's people. And this isn't because of something in David so much, although we do see that David's referred to as the man after God's own heart. But this is because of a character of humility and, and, and somebody who submits to the work of God and allows him to be used. It has nothing to do with David's greatness, but it is all about God's greatness. Take the lowly, the, the youngest son, 
and raise him up, make him a great warrior, make him a conqueror, but always through God's power. He repeatedly shows off, God does, through David, because David is willing to submit to God's greatness and be used. We said earlier that Solomon would, would be the one to build the temple, and, and we see this family line, this dynasty transferred from David to Solomon, but then again we get those words of forever. And all those forever words again point forward to Christ. And it's interesting because as, as we look at dynasties and lineage, this is, this is a big deal as we look through God's Word, right? In Matthew, Matthew goes to great lengths to show this lineage all the way back from Abraham to David, but culminating at the pinnacle in Jesus. But he's showing in that that Jesus is the fulfillment of what this promise says in 2 Samuel 7. This is considered the Davidic covenant. Right? And, and we see that Jesus is the descendant, the son, who is going to be the forever king. And when we look at this idea of a forever king, a throne, a reigning and ruling forever, this is talking about the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the, the one that God chose to have dominion forever. In, in Psalm 110.1, David actually writes and says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And he's talking about Jesus, even before he realizes it. In Matthew, Jesus uses this, and he says to the scribes, How, how can the scribes say that, G, the, that the Christ, or the Messiah, is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how can he be his son? This is all to point to Jesus as the forever king. Not only a descendant, but higher than David. David refers to him as Lord. Now, I wouldn't refer to my little guy, Elijah, is Lord, right? He's my son. I'm not going to call him Lord. So we see that this disparity in this wording. David, the king, the earthly king, is calling him Lord, showing his majesty, his, his, his power, his height, his position. Jesus is revealing that he is more than just a physical descendant of David when he talks about this. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, Jesus states, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He's saying the root, he's, he's the one who created David, but also the descendant and fulfillment of the messianic promise. He's the true king. He is the forever king. He is the fulfillment of this covenant that is made. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord's of Lord, Lord of lords. It's his authority. It's his power that is revealed to us. He brings us into his kingdom by his power. 
because of who he is and not who we are. And what he did on the cross to pay for our sin so that we would be allowed to come in. Because apart from Christ, we're rebels. We're not submitted to the king. We're fighting against him until we come and submit and surrender to him as Lord, as our king. We're on the wrong team. But Jesus paid that price when he died on the cross so that our sin wouldn't be counted against us. It says when, when we were still rebels, he loved us, died for us. It's all about him. It's all about his kingdom. It's all by his power and authority. David knew this. David knew that it wasn't about him. David didn't kill the giant Goliath. God killed the giant Goliath. David didn't fight and win all the wars by himself. God went before him. David wasn't brought up because he was awesome. He was brought because God's glory would be on display through him. We do work for the kingdom, not for our fame or gain, but to lift high the name of Jesus. We are part of the kingdom. We are servants in the kingdom. And it's a great honor that we get to do that. But this idea of lineage is important to a lot of people, right? Uh, years back, before I started following Christ, I was uh, doing some research of my ancestry online. I'm not going to say what the website is. But it was interesting to me. And, and I'll tell you in my heart what I was really trying to figure out was, am I important in some way? Am, am, I, am I connected to somebody who is powerful or famous? I, I wanted to feel like there was more to my life than who I was. But it was, it was I, don't, I don't have anybody famous or powerful. It's just me. Like, in fact, it, you know, pretty uh, uninteresting at the end. But um, that was in my earthly lineage. All that changed when I submitted to Christ. I know a lot of us and a lot of people get caught up in our lineage, our house. Even, you know, when it's a good desire to have a good name, a good reputation, you know, and, but we can get caught up in that so much. And the emphasis goes to us when it should go to God. I'll tell you my adoption, and if you are a follower of God, your adoption into his family, that's the lineage that counts. That's the dynasty that counts. You're a child of God, and your legacy is in Christ. We should be amazed at the greatness of God. We should be humbled by the true king because he is great. He's faithful. So we learned last week, he, he is the promiser and the fulfiller of the promise. That's what matters. He saves us. And in great gratitude, we should desire to serve him like David had that good desire. So what do we do with, with all this? Well, there's our response, our response to God's greatness over his kingdom. And for this, we're going to read the prayer that David prayed as he responded to this news. 
Now remember, this news is a no for David. Your desire is good, but no, you don't get to do that. But there's some promises in there that amaze David. And so it says in verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth with whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before them, driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt and nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. And your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. We see a few different things in, in David's response. We, we see at the end this boldness, right, to, to pray back the promise that God has made and, and ask him to fulfill it. And, and we can have boldness with the promises of God. I also want to warn us to be very careful as we look at the text, we don't pull out promises that weren't meant for us and pray them with boldness because they're not ours. But there are many promises that are for all believers. And we should pray boldly for God to make those happen. He promised. But most importantly, I think it's how the passage starts. The king the most powerful person in Israel, comes before him and says, Who am I, O Lord? Who am I? As we started this series, we, we anchored in some text that talks about 
God is great, but we are poor and needy. Not just physically, but spiritually. We need God. And when we come and we read these great promises and we look at the work that Jesus did to save us, to move us from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, our response should be on our knees saying, who am I to get such grace? Who am I to receive such mercy? I don't deserve it. And we should respond from that humility with what it says in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that, you have heard, all that we have heard with our ears. And that's what I'm praying for us this morning, that you would look at your life and know that You get to be a part of this kingdom. But it's not for your glory, and it's not out of your power, but it's because of him. We submit to his great authority. We submit to his great power. We submit to work for his great kingdom because he is the true king. So as we go out this week, I want you to think about that. I want you to Think about yourself as a temple that's carrying the presence of God to shine brightly and to tell people how great your God is because of what he's done. Now, if you'll pray with me.